everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen so kick back grab your popcorn and join us listen to magical rewind on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts brought to you by state farm like a good neighbor state farm is there shall i take your order or do you need a minute yes i'll be ready just buying a car on carvana what it's super convenient i already got pre-qualified in two minutes all i had to do was answer a few questions what that's handy yeah now i'm customizing my down and monthly payments what that's an exquisite deal and just like that carvana's delivering my car in a couple days what oh yeah uh sorry i'll have the burrito Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Delivery fees may apply. You're listening to the Tudor Dixon Podcast in the Clay and Buck Podcast Network. Welcome to the Tudor Dixon Podcast. I'm Tudor Dixon, and I'm so happy to have you joining me. My guest today is a genius when it comes to dissecting the message and helping people understand what opportunities are available to them and how those same opportunities may be threatened by progressive ideology. When we first met, I had one of those moments where I thought, I this guy knows so many things. I just want to dissect his brain and learn everything I can. And so that's what I want to do today. And since then, you probably have all gotten to know him a little bit. Vivek Ramaswamy has announced his run for president of the United States. And you've likely had the pleasure of hearing some of the stories of his ideas. But today we're going to dig deep into those ideas. Vivek is the author of two books, Woke Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam, and Nation of Victims, Identity Politics, The Death of Merit, and The Path Back to Excellence. Very controversial topics right now. The progressive media is attacking conservatives using the word woke, claiming they can't define it. And since we have the nation's expert right here, I want him to help us define it. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek, welcome to the podcast. Good to talk to you, too. It's too flattering of an introduction, but, but thank you for that. I appreciate it. Well, no, it's really true, because when I was running for governor, I met you and you were talking to me about messaging and how to talk about these things. And they really are hard to talk about. And so, you know, that the progressive media attacks anybody that talks about woke, but you've looked at it from a different angle. And so I want your perspective, especially as someone who is a part of the minority community, but oftentimes folks that are in the minority community that are Indian are not seen as somebody that is necessarily discriminated against, but you say, you know, you looked different than other folks when you were growing up and your dad said, take advantage of that. And you certainly have. So tell us woke from your perspective. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important that we got to define something before we tear it down. So let's actually define it in neutral terms and then we'll get to criticizing it, you know, shortly thereafter. Being woke, even amongst its proponents, refers to waking up 
to invisible societal injustices, generally based on genetically inherited characteristics like race, gender, sexual orientation, and then acting uh, to correct those injustices, be it through the market or any other means, whatever it takes to close those injustices. That's what proponents of this new secular cult would say. But it has a religiosity about it, which says that we have to use any means necessary. And so I've got two issues with it. One is it's inherently divisive because it causes us to see one another on the basis of our genetically inherited attributes, forgetting the few things that actually bind us together across our different shades of melanin. I mean, Tudor, you and I are two different genders. We have two different shades of melanin. So what? To me, it's meaningless if there's nothing greater that actually binds us together across those differences. So that's my first issue with it. And the second issue is that wokeness doesn't believe in just using politics as a solution. It actually believes in settling disagreements, not through free speech and open debate in the political process, but actually through other means, including through the market, including through the economy. And what that does is it politicizes every other sphere of our lives, not just politics, but even, say, capitalism becomes politicized, too. And so those are the two, two issues that I have with it. But I do think it's important to be able to see what the other side proposes as even their definition of woke before we take it down. So I, I love that you're describing this because when I said that we were going to have you on the podcast, one of the young folks in our office said, I really like him. And what I like about him is that he is willing to explain everything, just go through and explain it. And it makes sense to me. And I think that's something that we don't necessarily get from politicians today, but this is new for you. You're going from tech mogul to president. So explain how you come to that decision and how do you fight back? Because sometimes when you're in the position of becoming a political person and you do explain, that's easy to attack as well. So it's tough. It's a new world for you. It is a new world. I don't think of myself as a politician, at least not yet. Uh, hopefully, right. you know, it stays that way. <laughs> Part of what draws me in is, you know what, Tudor, I actually think the Republican Party would benefit from a new tradition for the presidency, which is that we nominate the outsider, period. Mm. I, I actually think that if you want to be a senator or congressman or whatever, there's a lot of benefit to having experience in understanding the lawmaking process and how the sausage gets made, in understanding how to play the political craft. I think it's probably the other way around if you're actually a chief executive. I've been a chief executive before. I've built and run companies, multi-billion dollar business I built from scratch. But I think that some of those lessons actually are the lessons that I intend to bring to the executive office. Not to say that because I built a business, then I'm entitled to run the country. A lot of self-funders have made that mistake before. But I have a vision for our country that the people who we elect to run the government ought to be the people who actually run the government. That's not the case in the federal government today. And you know what? I bring a private sector view to this to say that if I'm running the federal government and, and you work for me and I can't fire you, that means that you don't work for me. It means that I work for you. And I refuse to serve as president of the United States captive to a federal bureaucracy that views the president as its employee. And I don't think you're going to get that type of change from an insider, from a career politician. I think you get to be an outsider look, once. We see that right now, right? Totally. We see a career politician in that position right now. And you can also see how handcuffed he is by the fact that he's a career politician, to be honest. And I love what you're saying, because obviously that's the same reason I ran for governor. And I think it's important that the American people hear what you're saying in this way, because 
you know how to put the right people around you. It's not about whether or not you know exactly how these laws came to be passed over years and years. It's because you know what the vision is, you know how to cast the vision, and you know how to bring the people together. Explain that to the American people so they totally get why you think that works. Yeah, and I think I think it's tr- especially true at this moment in our history where we're in the middle of this yeah. national identity crisis where you ask most people our age, younger, whatever, what does it mean to be an American today? You get a blank stare in response. And I think an opportunity for the next U.S. president is to deliver an answer to that question. Revive the ideals that define what it means to be American, from merit to free speech and open debate to self-governance over aristocracy. Let's revive those ideals and then, you know, set a policy vision for how to implement it, but actually get that done without an intermediating managerial class and administrative bureaucracy that stands in the way and in between. And you made a great point about Joe Biden. I mean, I think in some ways, I think that we Republicans criticize Joe Biden too much because that almost gives him too much credit as though he is the one running the government. He's not. In fact, I think that if he continues to persist in running for a re-election, we'll see what the National Archives does of him. It's the administrative state that views the elected officials, even in the Democratic Party for that matter, as an inconvenience. And I think you need somebody who is not going to apologize for that vision all the way through. And I think that there's a good chance that if you're grown up through that very system, you're exactly the kind of person that is susceptible to capture by that same administrative bureaucracy. And so I think that that's that's what we really need is somebody who has an uncompromising vision at a moment where most Americans are actually hungry for it, hungry for this missing American national identity. That's the black hole that wokeism and climate religion and gender ideology prey on. I think if we can fill that void with the vision of American national identity, kind of like, you know, in a way Reagan did that in 1980 in the back of a national identity crisis in the late 70s. That's the kind of moment I think we're in now And and that's a big part of what drew me into this. If you asked me, you know, even a year ago, was I going to run this race? It wasn't even on my mind. But I think as of, you know, last December, watching the way this was shaping up, I said, look, this is an opportunity for the country. That's why I decided to step into the void. So let me talk to you a little bit about the things that came to me when I was running and the things that I think will be questions the American people have for you, because the woke issues are concerning, but the everyday kitchen table issues are the ones that I hear the most. And honestly, I will tell you that when you talk about some of these woke issues, that's the left's dream because they have the best narrative to fight you on that. But what they don't have a good narrative on is how they're going to fight fentanyl, how they're Mm -hmm. going to secure the border, how they're going to make sure kids get back on track. Those are issues that I keep hearing, but honestly, fentanyl and the open border What is the answer there? So these, I mean, these cultural issues are deeply linked to the issues that affect us in the daily life. Let's talk about fentanyl and let's talk about the economy. So my view is, and I'm glad this is becoming more popular in the Republican Party. I've been saying this for the better part of the last year. If you're going to use the U.S. military to secure someone else's border, it is a perfectly legitimate use of the U.S. military to secure our own border. It's not just build the wall. It's build the wall now and use a military to actually secure it. That is a legitimate use of the U.S. military. If you actually want to solve the fentanyl crisis, well, you know what you can do to what we did in ISIS. If we could do that in places like Syria and Iraq, we can do it to the drug cartels south of the border in Mexico. 
use the military to annihilate the cartels. Now, that's easier said than done. The NSA, for the longest time, has actually used its intelligence capacities on the other side of the world in more challenging terrain. Very little usage of NSA resources to even light up any intelligence south of our own border here in Mexico, even though there's 100,000 deaths per year and growing due to fentanyl that crosses the southern border of the United States with Mexico. So that's a solvable problem, but it takes resolve. It takes cutting through the defense establishment's traditional view that you can only use the military to solve problems that are far away from the United States. And I'm not saying this sarcastically, Tudor. Actually, many people in the defense establishment say that the difficulty of using the military in Mexico is the fact that Mexico is so close to us and that we share a border. That is backwards. Oh, I'm sure. I know. That's I, actually it's backwards. It's crazy. And so, and so mm-hmm. I, I think that the willingness to cut through and use logic and reason to solve a problem I mean, that's really what's at stake in the wokeness debate. It's not about some cultural war about what somebody was taught in gender ideology in high school. It's a symptom of a deeper abandonment of basic logic Mm -hmm. and basic principles of reason and truth itself. And I think the same thing goes for the economy. I mean, you talk about kitchen table issues. I I agree with you. There's an anti-growth agenda in the United States. You know, Republicans and Democrats will debate spending cuts versus tax increases as though we forgot that GDP growth itself is a possibility. In fact, it's the best way to lift us out of most of our problems. But part of the reason that we have the trouble of adopting a pro-growth agenda in this country is that there's an anti-growth agenda that stands in the way. I mean, the climate cult is a big part of that. It is fundamentally anti-growth. The opposition, you know, I talked about this the first time we met, to nuclear energy is really hostility to growth itself. It's not carbon emissions because nuclear energy doesn't entail carbon emissions. Nuclear energy empowers growth. What we actually have in this country, a strain of this country, it's only about 20% of the country or less, is fundamentally opposed to GDP growth. They say that we should actually live with less and that that's a different worldview and philosophy. Well, I respect diverse views, but sorry, that's a small enough minority of the country that it's not going to affect my policies. We want a pro-growth agenda in the country. You call that wokeness? Well, wokeness is just a symptom of the same self-hatred and apologism in our country. And so that's why I think these themes of national identity go hand in glove with what you call kitchen table issues, which are really important, but they're not separate. They're deeply linked, I would say, at their core. Well, when you talk about self-hate and that kind of stuff, I mean, you really see that when you see the fact that we lost our energy independence. You talk about nuclear energy. We just closed a power plant in Michigan last year. You see what's happening I mean, obviously, I'm very close to the the issues in Michigan, but look at Michigan. You see this Chinese company coming in, building a battery plant. You see Ford now aligning with a Chinese company. You've got Virginia saying, no way, you're not coming here. Michigan is welcoming them in. This is all also part of the climate cult, as you as you say, because you have these are both companies that are supposedly making these electric batteries for cars that are going to be so much more efficient, even though we have no ability to power them because we are getting fewer and fewer power plants. And we also know that the way they are making these, it, it, there's human rights abuses all across these countries that are making these batteries. But also, why are we giving this power to China? Don't you think that China is a, a massive danger to the United States? It is the number one danger to the United States. And I think we need a foreign policy that wakes up to that reality. But one of the things that makes it really difficult for us to take on China is that unlike the Soviet Union in the last century, they never provided, the Soviet Union, which never provided the shoes on our feet and the phones in our pockets, right. China supplies yeah. our modern way of life. Okay, and that's mm-hmm. what makes it very difficult to take on China. If that had been a Russian spy balloon flying over half the United States, we would have shot it down in an instant and we would have ratcheted up sanctions on Russia. The reason we didn't do it with China is that we're fundamentally frightened. 
We're frightened because we know we economically depend on them. That is a solvable problem. I spent actually a lot of detail in one of my briefings earlier this week with a supply chain expert going through the details of how there are redundancies in the rest of the world, from India to Brazil to Western Europe to Japan. But we fall prey to this fear that we've grown so addicted to China in so many ways, you know, actual fentanyl, financial fentanyl in the form of national debt, digital fentanyl in the form of TikTok, but the broader addiction to buying cheap stuff through this game of so-called international trade opened up bilateral relations by Kissinger. This is a worst version of what was supposed to be a dream. It's actually become a nightmare where they're using our own companies as sort of a sword of Damocles to say that you guys are so reliant on us that we can do whatever we want, even militarily or geopolitically, that you're going to stand by and not do a thing about it. And I think we have to call that bluff and prove them wrong. But again, Tudor, that takes leadership. And it's not going to come from the bipartisan consensus of the last 30 years. One of the things that we heard in the 2016 campaign was manufacturing was coming back. A lot of that manufacturing did come back. But to your point, there are so many manufacturing companies that are now intertwined with China. I come from the steel foundry industry. When I was heavily involved in steel foundries 10 years ago, steel foundries were going out of business left and right and going to China. How do you convince companies to start these these types of corporations back up in the United States? Because we do not have iPhone City. I mean, when you look at iPhone City in China, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that stay there. They live there. They work there day in and day out and they go home for holidays. That's it. How do we how do we replace that other places? So I think it's a combination of carrots and sticks. I mean, I think that it's a good thing when the companies move their supply chains either to the United States or even to other countries outside of China, realize the benefits of doing so. It's not as hard as they think. You know, human beings, companies like them are creatures of habit, right? It's not all about economics. Economics and psychology go hand in glove. Once they realize it's not that hard, they start doing more of it. Once their peers demonstrate it's not that hard, they start doing the same thing because China is a risk for everyone. But I think we've got to be willing to use the stick, too. And this is, this is controversial, even in our party. But I think we have to be in a position, at least have to be willing, to ban most U.S. businesses from doing business in China until the CCP radically reforms its behaviors. And maybe that means even the CCP until the CCP falls. Now, I actually think, I'm an optimist that that can happen. Because Xi Jinping shot China in the foot last October as part of his gambit to keep a third term, holding on to an unprecedented third term of power. Well, now is a moment where China is actually vulnerable. And if we pull the economic rug out from under them, I think we can defeat them economically now so that we never have to militarily later. And we should never want or take steps towards a hot war with China if we can avoid it. I think we have a window to avoid it. And and I think it's my understanding of these issues, first personally, deeply. I've been an exchange student in China. I've done business in China. It gives me conviction that this is actually achievable. But it's going to take some measure of short-term sacrifice Maybe not even sacrifice, but willingness to make one, because in geopolitics, it's when you're willing to make a sacrifice that actually it's most likely you never actually have to make it. A little bit more Churchill, a little less Chamberlain. Our foreign policy would do well with that. That's what I'm planning to deliver. Well, I think you're right. I think there is a lot that can be done that is pro-America, even if you are not moving your company into the United States, but moving your company to an allied country instead of having them with one of our adversaries. So just quickly, lastly, I will say you're from Ohio. Many people say as Ohio goes, goes the nation. Do you win Ohio? I'd like to. Uh, I think that I think that that's something we're, we're uh, I would say, uh, very optimistic about. Uh, Iowa and New Hampshire are the core focus right now. I'd say this. If we're doing what we do in rooms of 100 or 200 in places like Iowa or New Hampshire, 
I am very optimistic about not just the primary, but the general election. I think 2024 has the opportunity to be a landslide election if we make this about rediscovering a missing national identity and an economic revival to go along with it. Now, the key question is, can we do what we're doing with rooms of 100 or 200 people in Iowa, New Hampshire? Can we take that across the country? I believe we can. We're going to do some unconventional things in this campaign. You know, Ohio is my home state, so I, I uh, hope and expect to win Ohio both in the primary and in the general. But, you know, I think that the, the proof is going to be in the pudding. We're just three weeks into this, and it's going well so far, but we have a long hill to climb. But we're ready to, ready to climb Mount Everest, if we, Mount Everest if we have to, and uh, I'm excited for the journey. Well, I like unconventional because I think Republicans have to start doing unconventional things because we're struggling across the nation. So I'm anxious to see what unconventional means, but I'm really excited for you. I think that you are a fascinating guy. I know that people across the country are perking their ears up and listening to what you're saying, and you are definitely getting a lot of tension. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for, I know what it is to run, and I can't imagine what it is to run nationwide. So I think that is just amazing, and I am so excited that you are a presidential candidate. Vivek Ramaswamy, thank you for coming on today. Thank you, and I'm, I'm excited to, to watch your next steps, too. Keep up the great work and keep your voice active, Tudor. I'm, I'm incredibly proud to watch you as well, so keep it up. Thanks a lot. Well, it's, it's fun calling you a friend. Thank you so yeah. much. And thank you all for joining me on the Tudor Dixon podcast. For this episode and others, go to TudorDixonPodcast.com. You can subscribe right there and join us next time on the Tudor Dixon podcast. Have a great day. Looking for natural, healthy weight loss support? Try MD Blend Dr. Formulated Metatrim. MD Blend offers a money-back guarantee if not satisfied, so you have nothing to lose but weight. Metatrim uses clinically studied ingredients like lemon verbena, hibiscus flour, and green coffee bean extracts. A balanced diet and the doctor-formulated blend in Metatrim can provide healthy weight loss support. Nothing to lose but weight with Metatrim at mdblend.com. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.